Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Context podcast. Today I'm joined by my friend Phil Moore. Uh, how are you doing, Phil? Doing well, thank you. Thank you, Ian. Oh, great. Generally, what I do is I introduce people and then I don't give them anything to talk about because I do all the talking. <laughs> <laughs> so Phil, right. share a little bit about yourself, uh, what your role is. And... Yeah, yeah, for sure. So my um, my role is Axe 29 Europe Director. And uh, I also have got other roles that I do in Axe 29, but that's the kind of the main focus that I have in Europe. And uh, it's a big privilege. I've been doing this for about five or six years now. It's always hard for me to work out exactly when it started and and when when the transition happened, then um, all those things are a little bit kind of nebulous for me. But yeah, I've been doing this for about five or six years now. Huge privilege. I'm 48 years old, originally, as you probably tell from my accent, uh, from Northern Ireland. Married to Rachel. We've got five children, um, Julia, who's 20, and then Anna is 18, Abigail's 17, Theo is 12, he's the only boy, and then Zoe, our youngest, she's nine years old. Yeah, I feel for Theo, poor, poor lad. Yeah, poor wee fella. He wants a dog, and although um, we haven't totally promised it yet it's very likely that we'll be getting a dog for Theo soon to to keep him company and to, to help him develop all those aspects of his personality that he wants to develop that's what my wife and daughters promised me that's that's <laughs> that that right that me is the only man in the house <laughs> that's right that's right apparently you know it's quite traumatic for you to talk about your dogs I heard that in one of the podcasts <laughs> it's only when you talk about my recently dead dogs that it upsets me <laughs> But I'm not Steve Robbo, so I won't do that. I'll not be asking that kind of question. <laughs> <laughs> so you're being director. Uh, you're more sensitive than than Steve Robbo is. So that's nice to know that you're right, yeah, yeah. a bit more caring than he is. I'm all about empathy, me. <laughs> <laughs> but you're based in France, then, aren't you? You're, you're, you're I am a, right. yeah. in, in just outside Paris. That's right. Mm-hmm. So how come we ended up there? You, you mentioned you're from Northern Ireland. So was there a big, massive culture shock for you moving from... Uh, Northern Ireland to France to pastor a church? Actually, not as much as there would have been had it not been for the way I think God prepared me for for the move. Mm. So my dad was a French teacher. So I grew up with French in my culture and in my family life. Um, essentially, in, in Northern Ireland, school stopped at the end of June and picked up again in September. And for those two months, essentially, apart from a week of it, uh, we would spend it in France. So we had a caravan and there were four boys. I was the second of four boys. And so mum and dad and the four boys, we would head across to France um, for six or seven weeks um, every summer holiday. And we would uh, park the caravan anywhere we could and just enjoy France. So France was an amazing country and we, we loved it for a holiday destination. And then there was another aspect of that, which was um, that every Sunday, mum and dad would get out this kind of short, tattered book, which is the list of all the evangelical churches in France. Um, I don't know if that exists in, in, in Britain or whatever, but this list of all evangelical churches, and we would look for the nearest evangelical church that there was on a Sunday. And so we would drive, and sometimes we'd have to drive like half an hour to get to the nearest church. And we'd arrive at the church, and it would be a small church, insignificant, maybe six or seven people, maybe no pastor. Sometimes there'd be a note in the door saying, no church service today because it's during the summer holidays. And so at the same time, France was for me this beautiful destination for holiday and a place where the gospel, I mean, we wouldn't have expressed it like this as a kid, where the gospel was really um, absent in, in so many different ways and where the church was really struggling. And so I grew up with a love for France, both as a place to live and as a place that the gospel needed to get to. Mm-hmm. And more than that, the churches that we were involved with in, um, in Ireland, the Irish Baptist Association, um, they were supporting missionaries in France. And one of the, the funny things was that 
when I ended up coming to France in 2006, I came to pastor a church that had been planted as a result of the initiative, the Marna Valley uh, 2000 project that we'd been supporting and, and giving to as a, as a church back in Ireland. So it's kind of a nice, a nice thing to end up in, in, in pastoring that church. So it wasn't a culture shock for me. In fact, it was it was great to come to France. I love France um, and I love the French people. I love French culture. Uh, so, yeah, no, it's it, I can't say it's a culture shock for me to be here. So what would you say then, the, 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 the lack of evangelical churches, uh, when you were going as a child, would the dominant view be a Catholic worldview? Or, it's quite yeah, so, so the, the funny thing is, sometimes I, I try to express this um, by using Luke 15 as an analogy. Um, so France is both a mixture of the older brother, and that would maybe be the very traditional Catholic uh, point of view, um, where there's a sense of morality, a sense of duty, a sense of a Christian heritage. And so all of the holidays in France are to do with the Catholic Church, you know, the Catholic calendar. So, for example, in August, it's all about the Assumption of Mary and so on and so forth. All the way through the, the school year, it's all about different Catholic holidays. Um, uh, people are very Catholic in their idea of what morality is like. Um, and, and, and at the same time, you've got this very revolutionary, atheistic, materialistic um, libertine point of view and the two grew together in France in a, in a kind of really interesting way um, and there, there are two pictures that I have um, that I could show you if we were doing PowerPoint or anything like this one is a demonstration in Paris uh, after do you remember the, the massacres in Charlie Hebdo mm. the guys came and shot some journalists and so after that there's a huge demonstration in Paris where lots of people um, kind of marched for freedom of expression freedom of um, able to say what you want about anybody anytime you like um, and, and that includes all the kind of blasphemy stuff that, that you might uh, associate with that. A million people in the streets of Paris. Mm. And then uh, not too long in time, I think there was a year between the two marches, a million people in the streets of Paris demonstrating against homosexual marriage. Mm. <laughs> so I think that maybe France is the only country you would get a million people um, demonstrating on, on two opposite sides of a, a kind of a cultural debate. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's very similar. That's kind of very uh typical of what france is like the older brother and the younger brother um existing almost side by side in equal numbers um and so france is like that very traditional very catholic it's impossible for people to imagine a kind of form of christianity that isn't catholic and at the same time very atheistic very humanistic um rejecting all kinds of constraints all kinds of morality and um, the only thing that's forbidden is to forbid anything uh, that was one of the slogans from may 1968 so that, that's france for me so you've got those both those twin tracks the last time i was in nice there was a demonstration that i think the french love a good demonstration yeah, they're, they're, they're never out of the streets it's incredible it's and impossible I, for any government to make any progress on anything because <laughs> the french are always yeah, <laughs> striking and going down into the streets so the gilets jaunes everybody's been watching the yellow vests yeah they're, they're still going strong it's incredible like uh, all this time afterwards well that's what and, was happening in nice we were walking through the city a beautiful city and the esther was like why is there so many police? I said, oh, that's Europe for you. Dad, they've all got guns. I said, yeah, that's Europe for you. Dad, look, they look like the army in the next scene. <laughs> there's a million people with high-vis vests coming. Exactly. Like, Maybe you were right, love. I always think that I'm on the ball and, and I'm aware of things going on, but I was oblivious to this huge... <laughs> <laughs> that's right, yeah. So that's, that's a challenge for the gospel in France, actually, you know, because... Um, You've got this 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 huge traditional Catholic population um, that is one view, um, 
and it's very hard to get them to to see the gospel because they've been kind of inoculated against the gospel by the the ways in which they've heard about the gospel through the catholic church mm -hmm. which um often is more like pulling a veil over people's eyes as to what what it means to be saved by faith through grace alone mm -hmm. um so that's one one thing and then the other thing is like it's just impossible to get them to imagine uh, a, a potential life in which they believe in god yeah, yeah. that that's that's not an option that's not something that ever enters somebody's head if they're in the atheistic materialistic humanistic side of things it's not a not a potential po possibility for their life so the concept of sin uh, uh, and, and salvation is just totally missing with one half of the population would you say and then with and the other half, it, it's it's a it's a fear but where to find salvation is probably that's right and so so sometimes you, you get conversations with them um, people who are Catholic or post-Catholic with a kind of a fondness for the idea of God, mm. but a rejection of the institution of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Sometimes those kind of conversations are really promising because people will say, ah, I understand that this gospel of grace, this idea of a God of love, a God who's, who's taking things seriously, but who is, it's not kind of a, the, the way that the, it's often expressed in, in Catholic theology in France at the, at the popular level is that you do your good actions and then God rewards your good actions by giving you salvation. And so I remember very vividly a conversation I had with a friend of mine when we were jogging together. He's a much better jogger than me, so I ask him questions and he talks <laughs> and I can keep up with him. Um, and so we were out for this run and I said, what did you do the weekend? And he said, um, well, I, I invited this person uh, to dinner. And so that meant that I'd done my BA and BA is the French for bonne action. Mm -hmm. um, but actually at that moment, you realize that that, that theology actually um deforms the relationships that we have with each other yeah, because yeah. instead of him inviting his friend because he liked his friend and wanted to spend time with his friend mm -hmm. part of the reason why he did that was he wanted to do his good action mm -hmm. so he was doing this good action not so much for his friend but for himself mm -hmm. because he wanted to find favor with god through the being generous with his friend but also kind of completely deforms your relationship with god because instead of god being full of grace and love and welcoming you and then that inspiring you to do good works which is what we see in the bible you have this relationship with god where you're trying to manipulate him to like you yeah. through doing some good yeah. works so so that whole philosophy which i think is quite deeply rooted in france i think uh, makes makes all of the relationships that you have either with god or with other fellow human beings um inauthentic mm. and so what i'm trying to do when i'm talking to people like that is to show them that the way in which the Protestant Reformation reformulates things in the light of the Bible, that God is a God of grace, and that good actions flow out of the uh, thankfulness that you have because God has saved you. That actually makes more sense of God, makes more sense of you, makes more sense of the relationships you have with other people. And so that kind of conversation is really useful. And when people can begin to see that they've got good works and, and salvation the wrong way around, they've got them in the wrong theological and logical and chronological sequence. And so when we get that conversation going that's really really useful um, um and then the other conversation is getting getting atheistic french people to uh, grapple with sin and judgment it's a it's a really hard hard thing and i, and I very have very few stories of, of that actually happening mm. um, and when it does happen it happens when people um, have this relationship of trust and confidence with either a christian person or christian people mm. and when they start taking the bible seriously that's when it starts to happen. And so I've got a couple of um, cases in mind where French people from an atheistic background 
I've read John's gospel. Great. And through reading John's gospel, I've come to faith. Mm. And that's, that's been really super. Awesome. Mm. So, so a challenge in, in, in your role as pastor, uh, to competing with, as you've described, the, the two brothers and, and, and the French, right. French culture, do you see there as being uh, similarities between life in Northern Ireland growing up? Do you think there was that similar kind of attitude or has it become more so now? I haven't been back in Northern Ireland to live for 16 years. So I, I, I think the Northern Ireland society has moved on a good deal since then. And I think people would say the same about Britain in general. Mm-hmm. And even the southern part of Ireland is, is, is also the same. There's been huge societal change in these last 15 or 16 years. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure if I would know what ministry is like back in Ireland at the minute. Mm-hmm. Um, back when I, I was leaving Ireland, um, Christianity was still very much the norm. Um, Northern Ireland is very religious. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of um, Protestant and a lot of evangelical um churches in in northern ireland i think the time where i left bangor and um, there was 30 evangelical churches right for a population that wasn't much bigger than 60 or seventy thousand people yeah like it's an astonishing number of churches for that size of population so it's saturated with with evangelical churches mm. um i'm not sure it's saturated with grace in terms of how people <laughs> understand yeah. things um, and so that's also something that kind of gives you pause um but no i, I would say that ministry here is very different in terms of the demographics. Yeah. Then, of course, very similar because um, we, we were doing this, uh, uh, you know, we do assessments as Act 29. I remember one thing very vividly from an assessment where the person said, uh, mission doesn't start with the name of a city or the name of a country. Mission starts with the name of a person. Mm. And I think because that's true, in fact, ministry is similar wherever you go. It means meeting a person, taking an interest in a person, loving a person, um, spending time with that person, explaining the gospel to that person. Um, and that's pretty similar to wherever you go, because yeah. in the end, you come to, to a personal relationship with a person. Mm. Yeah, I've been doing these interviews for, for a year now, and it, regardless of what country I'm in, what context we're in, when you're speaking to a pastor or a planter, it's always the same uh the, the mission plan is always the same to, to build relationships, isn't it? First of all, your relationship with God needs to be spot on. Uh, your relationship with your church and then with the, the local community and about building up trust and, and earning the opportunity to uh, share the gospel. Uh, but I, again, it sounds, I think we have caricatures of French, French people, especially now with what's going on with the fishing yeah. and Brexit and <clears throat> the migrant problems. And, 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 and it doesn't help that our media is constantly portraying uh, like Macron as a Napoleon figure, even though we yeah. hate Boris Johnson in our media. <laughs> <laughs> they found somebody <laughs> just like more than Boris Johnson. So there's, some... yeah. <laughs> there's that conflict being brought between people of, of who were once joined classed as European. Now there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a definite split between British and French again. And, mm-hmm. and how do you find that in Europe? Because there seems to be a... Uh, we're hearing similar stories of Poland and places like that who are wanting to separate from the EU. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what's your, your thought on that? How can... Uh, I think the idea of Europe is brilliant, but it's only the gospel who can unite these different classes. And yeah. Isn't it? I remember when there was the whole question of Brexit before it happened, before the vote happened, I wrote an article, it's probably still online somewhere, about Brexit and the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to think things through from the point of view of the gospel. Now, People criticised the article because it didn't take um, seriously enough, according to them, 
the idea of the state and the sovereignty of the state and the responsibility of the state before God and all those kinds of things and the the importance that it is to be able to set your own laws and to self-determine all those kinds of things um so that taken as read what i was saying was the existence of the european union and the freedom of movement between the different european states and the ability to move from state to state and to live and to exercise any profession you want including christian professions or, or pastoral professions for me that seems to be a big advantage and being able to do that across the whole of europe um and to be um, European and be able to do it uh, in, in Poland or, or wherever it would be, that's a huge advantage. So it's been very complicated for people who don't have Irish citizenship like I do um, mm. to sort all the paperwork out, sort all the kind of the residency issues out, to be able to stay in France um, and do their ministry here. And the same is true across Europe. So we definitely lost that advantage um, in terms of being able to move freely between countries and live freely in any country in Europe that we want. Mm-hmm. And I, I regret that because I think that's an overall good thing. Um, but but in terms of the European project uh, as a whole, I think there's an awful lot of skepticism about its long-term future in its current state. Um, because people see the cracks, people see the difficulties, and people see the inability that, that countries actually have to set aside uh, state ambition and to really go for the common good. Um, in fact, nobody is doing that, as I see it. Uh, France really isn't doing that, and Germany isn't really doing that. And um, I think people on the margins, like Poland, have a very strong sense of that, that, that the European project doesn't really exist for their benefit as such, um, and that they're having to give up quite a few things that they consider to be precious in order to remain part of the club. So I don't know what, what the long-term future is, is for. Um, I hope that it survives in some form. Um, but I'm not sure if the current form is the way it's going to survive. Mm. Yeah, and again, the, the implications for the struggle that we see for the European Union staying together, for compromise, for unity, uh, for the benefit of others, is, is the same struggles we find in the church. Uh, so we, we struggle in the church in the UK for unity, uh, not just theological unity, but even within our own theological tribe to be unified, there's class and ethnicity and all kinds of things that, that hamper that. Uh, mm. well, 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 these differences don't hamper it. It's our bad response to these differences that hamper it. Uh, yeah. So how do you, as a, as a European director, try and get beyond these caricatures that we all come to about other European countries? Uh, the, the, there's the language barrier, there's cultural differences, there's ethnicities and different worldviews within each country so how do you go about trying to unify each uh country that's part of acts 29 europe well i think what we try to do is we try to recognize first of all the uh, the the wealth of of diversity that we have and the, the kind of essential um goodness of that diversity so we don't look at europe as one thing we look at europe as a collection of different things that have commonalities but also differences so one of the things we've done is we've separated um, europe into eight big regions mm-hmm. And so we, we think of those regions as more similar to each other than, than, than not. So the regions, just for the sake of clarity, are um, everything that's English-speaking, so that's Ireland and GB. That's one unit. Um, even though there's big differences between Ireland and GB, and then within GB, big differences between England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. And then, as you said, within the UK, big differences between how um, uh, working class and middle class churches exist and are funded and are supported and how they develop and 
um, all those kinds of things. So although there's massive diversity within that, there's the commonality of the English language and a sense of cultural identity that stretches back you know, through a few centuries. So that's one particular reality. Um, but even within that reality, uh, as we know, uh, there's post-Catholic and post-Protestant mm. realities within the English-speaking uh, part of Europe. And so we try to make sure that we're conscious of all those different particularities. So we train people to plant churches um, in pertinent ways, in contextually relevant ways, in those different realities. Yeah. Um, so that's a snapshot of the GB bit. But then the same is true of all the other uh, regions. So there's a Iberian Peninsula region, that's Portugal and Spain. Uh, and that's getting off the ground in a really encouraging way. Um, obviously, that's mostly post-Catholic uh, in its uh, expression. And so there's lots of commonalities there. But in fact, it's really interesting because there's a guy who's planting in uh, Ireland who speaks really good Spanish, Johnny Pollock. I'm not sure if you know Johnny Pollock. Do you know him? Yeah. Yeah. So he's actually helping out in the Spain assessment. They're doing the first in-language assessment hmm. in Spain. Um, and they're discovering that their context in Catholic Ireland is very similar to the context that they have in Catholic Spain. And so they're, they're kind of exploring ways in which they can help each other plant churches uh, in those two contexts. Hmm. So although the language is different, some of the cultural background is the same, and they're helping each other to do that really well. There's French-speaking Europe. So French-speaking Europe is France, a part of Switzerland, a part of Belgium. Hmm. Um, and those three realities are very different from each other. So in Switzerland, there's lots of Protestant churches, I mean, lots of evangelical churches in the French-speaking part of Switzerland. And so that's a different reality from France. Um, France had a, a kind of a, a good shot at the Reformation, but then quashed it out in the wars of religion. I'm not sure how much of that history you know. But at one point, Calvin was sending back pastors from Geneva to plant churches in France at a rate of knots that was incredible mm -hmm. and with huge success. Um, and uh, to such an extent that there were kind of congregations of five and 6,000 people wow. being planted by pastors that Calvin had sent back and trained and supported from Geneva. Uh, and that history is really, really fascinating. Um, but then, since then, the, the Catholic Church and the French state really squashed Protestantism in France, and the Huguenots, um, you know, disappeared out of France because they were persecuted, and so they left. Um, and some of them found themselves in Holland, some of them found themselves in Ireland, some of them found themselves in the United States. And um, so it was really a kind of a persecution of the Christians that led to the Protestant Church being more or less eliminated um, from France at, at a certain point, uh, and it was allowed to exist in certain forms. Um, so that's the reality in France. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means that we've got a different uh, way of thinking about mission and church planting in France than we would have in Switzerland or even in Belgium. Um, but that's French-speaking Europe. And so we're, we're dealing with different realities in French-speaking Europe. Um, so that's three of our regions. Another of our regions is Northwest Europe. And that includes Germany and Holland and Denmark and the Scandinavian countries. <clears throat> and they're mostly post-Protestant. Um, and so churches that are planted in Germany, generally speaking, will grow quicker and bigger than churches planted in post-Catholic countries. Mm. And so that's just an interesting thing, thing to, to look at. Same is true in Denmark. It's less true in the Scandinavian countries, so normally in Sweden and Finland, um, because they've accelerated to such an extent in terms of um, secularization. So I think Sweden is the most secular country in the world now, and the most atheistic country in the world. Um, and we've got a, somebody who's trying to plant a church there called Ben Clark. He's married to a, a Swedish girl, and so they're uh, planting away there. Um, and it's really interesting to see how that develops. Um, there's one really interesting thing um, in Denmark, so maybe just a quick story about that. Uh, Klaus Runberg is, is uh, planting in Denmark, and when we were visiting him in Denmark, he took us to the main state church in Copenhagen, and outside the main state church in Copenhagen, there's a, a kind of a, 
banner that says drop in baptisms. <laughs> and so every Thursday night between seven o'clock and nine o'clock at night, you could drop in and get baptized <laughs> without any preparation, without believing anything, without doing anything. Drop in baptisms. That was what it was called, drop in baptism. And the idea is that the, the state church gets money right. for every person that's registered. Wow. So if you baptize, get baptized, you get registered, and then part of your taxes goes to the state church. And so baptism, like instead of being this sign of uh, somebody believing and professing faith in, in Christ, is all about belonging to a church so that the church can get some money from the state. That's oh, so, <clears throat> I, I, I'm I, I'm not f fresh on these terms, but that that would be yeah. That was that something left over from uh, the the state being in in control. Was that did you say Protestant? So, so, so in other words, so, some of the churches, some of the countries in in Europe still have state churches. So like UK has got a state church in the Church of England. Mm -hmm. um, Denmark has got a state church. It's the Lutheran Church. Um, I'm not sure what the state is in, in terms of Germany. I'll have to investigate that. But internally in Denmark, it's the state church is the Lutheran Church. Yeah. And if you're a member of the Lutheran Church, a baptized member of the Lutheran Church, then part of your taxes goes to support the Lutheran Church. <clears throat> so it's incredible. So, so we, we see the, the Anglican churches, the state church, but no, no way would they be getting any taxes from our government. <laughs> <laughs> That's a totally different. So it's just to give you an insight into the different realities that, that are there and the different ways in which Klaus, as he plants churches, mm. is coming up against a different sort of Protestant traditionalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and uh, anyway, uh, so that's that's that, that region there, and, and there's lots of differences in diversity within all those countries, obviously, but there's also some similarities um, to do with the Lutheran background. Mm. Then we move into Italy and southern part of Europe, and um, going all the way to Greece. Uh, JD's in charge of that um, region. Um, it's really encouraging, especially what's happening between Italy and Albania. Mm. But again, there you're talking about huge diversity. Italy is all about the Catholic Church um, and planting into that context. Um, Albania was one of the first totally atheistic countries um, that existed under the communist regime, um, but is now being infiltrated by tons and tons of um, different Gulf states that are building mosques and building um, amenities uh, so that the Albania is quickly becoming uh, a more and more Muslim country, mm -hmm. um, like some of the other countries around there in the Balkans uh, are as well. So that's another reality. And then, of course, when you get into Greece, you're talking about Greek Orthodoxy um, and all those things. So it's three different um, realities there that, that are overlaid by the European secular project. So, yeah, we've got all those things going on at the same time. And then two last regions to talk about. Um, there's the region, or three actually, uh, Central and Eastern region, um, which is all about um, having been dominated by the communist regime uh, uh, during the Cold War. Then you've got the Russian-speaking countries, and then you've got finally Turkey and all the Turkic countries around mm. uh, Turkey with Karim uh, leading that region, and Thomas leading, leading the central and eastern region so it's hugely complex and yet when we get together as europeans there is a commonality there we do understand each other in a way that we don't understand other cultures to the same extent mm. so yeah, i think that, that, that red wine you bring is something that we can get together on and be unified on isn't it we can we can definitely get around to that um mm. mate i've got to go and pick my daughter up i cool. can come back to this conversation in five minutes if you want yeah that would be brilliant yeah so we'll pick off where we left off which was where yeah. Uh, we were talking about unity and how red wine can unite us. Uh, but uh, joking aside, that is one of the, the, the best things I've found 
is when we, we come together, we had a retreat for Church and Hard Places back in, I think it was September uh, this uh-huh. year, didn't we? And, and we, we made did. a huge house, uh, shared food together, had a laugh and joke together, read God's word together, prayed and worshipped together. And for me, that was foundational in, foundational in bringing together these people of from different areas, different countries. We had people from like Wales, Scotland. We were home mm-hmm. to have guys from Northern Ireland. Yet uh, we were all united in Christ. Uh, and that yeah. rela- relational element is, I think, necessary if we want to see any kind of network grow and have an impact for Jesus, isn't it? So what are some of the things you do to encourage relationships between these different plants in different countries? I think what you just said is so important. It's um, it's so important given the right attitude you have when you come along to it. I don't know if you remember that bit in uh, Romans chapter one, Paul is telling the Romans that he's going to come visit them. Mm. And uh, he says in, in one verse, he says, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. And then it's as if the Holy Spirit kind of taps him on the shoulder and Paul kind of thinks, oh yeah. And then the next verse, the very next phrase, he says, that is to say that we may be mutually encouraged by the faith that we have in common. Mm. So obviously Paul was an apostle uh, and he had an amazing spiritual gifts to give to the Roman church. But even in that relationship, Paul the apostle was very conscious that when he went to Rome, he was going both as somebody who was bringing something to the table and somebody who was going to receive something from the other end. Um, he, had, he, had, he could be mutually enriched by the faith that they all had in common. So if we come to those kinds of gatherings um, where we have lots of people from lots of different backgrounds, not just in terms of class but or, or in terms of ethnicity, but in terms of countries and languages, if we come to those thinking to yourself, I've got something to bring, but I've got something to receive too. I've got something to listen to, to learn about, to find out about, to be inquisitive and curious about, um, to find out how God is working in your culture. And even just beyond that, what your culture is like, what you think is important, what you eat, what you drink, and how you celebrate, how you pray, um, how you come to God's word. All those kinds of things are so many different ways that I can actually grow as a person and grow as a Christian on the condition that I come humbly and come ready to learn and listen. Um, And so I think that's absolutely key. Coming together, being together, listening, um, and having that attitude that Paul exemplifies in, in the first chapter of Romans so we can be mutually um, enriched by the faith that we have in common. If we have that, and I think we have that in, in Europe, uh, in Acts 29, then, then we will just see God at work in so many different ways in our lives um, and in the lives of others. Yeah, I, f- I found that even language is changing and, and, and it needs to change. As, as where often we'd speak of donor churches and uh, mm-hmm. rather than partner churches where that donor... Exactly gives a power balance doesn't it of we are the ones who are giving you are the one who is receiving yeah and i I found again uh just encouraging we are partnered with a 829 church in dallas and they they Uh send us prayer videos out and asking for prayer requests and we are sending them back and so there's much Uh more of an emphasis on on that that humility of you know what we have got something to give but we've also got something to receive why do you think it's taken so long to uh, 809 is just one example of many different networks or denominations or church groups mm-hmm. that uh, need to shift the mindset why is it taking us so long to get to this point when paul was speaking of this <laughs> yeah so i think it's just part of human nature isn't it so part of the human nature is 
um, a kind of a, a lack mentality. I lack stuff. And so because I lack stuff, then I need people to fulfill that. And so I go asking. And so my attitude as somebody who's in need can be wrong. It can be as proud as the attitude of somebody who's giving because we don't see things in, in a rounded way. We just see things in terms of need and somebody who can meet my need. And so we're essentially quite selfish about that. So human nature is selfish. And then human nature is also um, such that um, if, if we don't have an obvious material need, then we tend to think that we don't have any needs. Mm. And so nobody who has a smaller church than us or nobody who has less money than us can possibly bring us something to the table. So on both sides of the equation, we've got this kind of human problem of pride, mm. self-sufficiency, um, and, and essentially selfishness. Mm. Um, and the gospel, of course, breaks that down. Uh, the gospel comes just with grace, tells us that, in fact, in front of God, we have absolutely nothing to offer apart from our sin. And we need everything from God. We are totally dependent on him. And, and that should kind of cascade through our mentality such that we, we come to our brothers and sisters, recognizing that we, we are needy, that we are um, in, um, in that position of humility, but together. And so as I receive and I can give, um, I just love what Paul says at the end of Acts 20, uh, when he reports those words that Jesus said that nobody else reports, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Um, and I think, you know, if, if we if we remember that more, more frequently, then we would have a better attitude on both sides of the equation, because we would understand that wherever we are and um, whatever our material or human resources, um, it's always more blessed to give than to receive. And we're always, by God's grace, in a position to be able to give, um, either of experience or of love or of prayer. Uh, or of time, we've all got something to give, uh, and it's always more best to give than to receive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And again, the, the, uh, another partner church we have this time with a eight two nine church in Michigan, well Trenton, just outside. Uh-huh. Uh, sorry, just outside Detroit in Michigan, uh-huh. and uh, yeah. they they they've, they sent a worker out for us for a year, but that was mutually beneficial. That was for him to be trained, but also yeah. to bless us through serving. Uh, the pastor's yeah. been out to to spend time with us several times, and it, it's only because I won't get on a plane that I've not. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that's not laziness. That's that's the kind of a phobia you have, isn't that right? You're kind of really scared of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Panic, I don't fancy getting arrested if I have a panic attack once I land in you. Know? <laughs> that's that. That'd be that'd be bad for all concerned. Yeah. Yeah. But I have. That, that's right. And, and I think I think so. To be honest, um, my experience of Acts 29 has actually pretty consistently been that attitude that posture of both we can give and we can receive yeah. i know that's not everybody's case and that's not everybody's experience but in terms of so i was linked up quick quite quickly with axe 9 west mm-hmm. um and so europe was linked up with axe 9 west back in the day when axe 9 west uh, was a separate kind of thing um and brian hard and the guys there had this posture right from their word go of we can give because god has blessed us materially and financially so we want to give but you guys are learning what it's like to do mission in a post-Christian and rapidly secularizing way. Can you help us understand what that's like? And so all the churches that I was involved with in Axel 9 West, so that's California, essentially in Oregon, um, uh, they were saying to me, please help us understand what culture could become like in, in the US. Um, and so I think that because Axel 29 um, is a relatively young and a relatively mobile organization with a big accent on contextualization and and on on that kind of men- mentality and mindset it's perhaps been in my experience quick quicker to get to that point where on both sides of an equation there's give 
undertake. Um, and I'm really encouraged by what I see uh, in Europe um, and in the different exchanges that happen um, between the churches there too. Yeah, so that I, I couldn't do this podcast without dropping in something about church in hard places or meadows. <laughs> <laughs> we're seeing that now, uh, church in hard places, Acts 29, a partnering with meadows, which is uh, mm-hmm. a rip-off basically of 20 schemes. Uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're seeing networks and, and, and pastors and planters uh, uniting to, to reach uh, areas of deprivation, uh, areas that are, are, are neglected by the gospel, not just in the UK, uh, but but mm-hmm. across the world, but in particular, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll we'll look at Europe today. So, mm-hmm. what encouragements have you had through uh, the development of church in our places and these um, this this idea of we all have something to give and we we all have something to share? Yeah. So, I, so I think that um, I've been hugely encouraged. So as you said, we were together in in September in Yorkshire, and that was an encouraging time. Just getting to know the guys and seeing what they're doing, um, learning from their experience, learning from their uh, perseverance in hard times um, and then also just kind of sharing about the difficulties that we have in common in ministry so, so we're all kind of doing the same ministry and encountering the same kinds of things in different contexts so that was hugely encouraging just on a personal level to get to know those guys and we've been continuing to do that since um, I think one of the things is that um, at different points in chronology you need to have specific specific ways of doing ministry and focuses um, so, for example, uh, in terms of you, Ian, you're, you're going to be particularly supporting church in hard places type situations. But I think it would be a shame if that was the only thing that you did, um, because uh, although that's a specific need and a focus that you need to have, it's not the only thing that God has gifted you to do. Yeah. So if you were to only pay attention to church in hard places type contexts, well, A, you'd be depriving other people of the kinds of things you could bring to the table. And B, you'd be depriving yourself of the kinds of experiences you would have when you stepped into those other spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that although focus and specificity is essential early days because somebody needs to, to bear that burden, somebody needs to have that laser focus, the more you go through, the more you realize that the, the things you learn in those focused areas are greatly beneficial in all other kinds of contexts. And so we just need to start to, to mix, you know, like a, like a very... Um, experienced cocktail mixer would get different elements and mix them together and serve you up this amazing drink. That's the kind of thing that we're trying to, to aim at, trying to get something that is um, taking all the experience that we learn uh, at the coalface in very particular circumstances and then applying the general principles we learn across not just contexts, but countries in Europe. Um, so I, I, I'm dreaming of that. And I think that cross-fertilization and that sharing of experience can only help the network um, as it grows. Uh, in the future yeah and, and again looking forward to uh costa blanca is it in may yeah costa blanca yeah or benadorm as some people call it um, <laughs> I don't know they call it, but yeah yeah no but and, and that's that's again another experience so the, the the conference is is called help for the journey yeah um and the conference in terms of its biblical uh expositions is going to be based in the book of romans and so this idea of help for the journey that comes from the last chapter in Romans when Paul, actually the 15th chapter when Paul says to the church in Rome, I'm coming to you so that you might help me on my journey mm. uh, to get to Spain. And you know that Paul wants to go to Spain to plant churches in Spain where Christ is neither named nor known um, because he's done all the ministry he can do around the Mediterranean basin up to that point. And, and that idea of help for the journey, I think, is key for our network in Europe. Actually, now in Europe exists to help church planters on the journey of church planting 
wherever they're from and wherever they're going, whatever their context, whatever their background, whatever their language, we want to help each other mutually in the journey of church planting. Um, and so obviously it's a metaphor, it's a kind of symbol. Um, but actually, as we look through the letter uh, of Paul to the Romans, we'll see how Paul actually invites and brings help for the journey at the same time through the gospel and through the community of the saints as they work together for that. My dream for Acts Around Europe is that we'll be just that for each other, people who help each other plant churches in the context that we're in uh, through the, uh, this, this kind of uh, brilliant way of um, bringing and melding together our experiences. Yeah, yeah. And again, Ephesians 3, I, I think it's the only chapter I must have read because I'm constantly quoting it. So. <laughs> the only chapter I'm reading is on the manifold <laughs> wisdom of God. So, yeah, I think we all have a, a, an oldie that we like to bring out every now and again, but that's mine. And again, a similar dream, isn't it, to see that what God intended his church to be, to be his manifold wisdom, where he brings people of uh, all ages, uh, sizes colors different ethnicities it's it's a melting pot that we're looking to see aren't we and, and that is what i was really encouraged with with the prayer meeting that we did night hearing from albania from italy from northern europe from uh from from spain and and again not just within europe because being part of acts 29 we're linked in uh, linked in across with america south america canada uh, mm -hmm. asia yeah so that being uh, part of this network for me I was pretty skeptical because I'm big on relationships and thinking, well, how can you have a relationship with somebody across the other side of the world yet? COVID mm -hmm. has brought in more interactive uh, meetings such as through Zoom. So yeah. yeah, share a little bit about uh, the blessings that we have being part of a worldwide organization as well as being part of a Europe uh, European. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you very much in the States. I, I, I think the Axiom churches in the States are among the most generous churches I've ever come across. They really are super invested in seeing churches planted across the world. Um, and in particular, my experience as Axon and Europe Director, they've been really generous in supporting that. There are churches today that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the support of the US churches, humanly speaking, you know, in terms of the financial support. Um, so that's one, one aspect that is really a huge benefit to be linked into the churches in the States. But then apart from that, um, it's the opportunities that we have, uh, whatever our material resources situation, to benefit other people. Let me give you the example of the church in Italy and then the church also in France. So the church in Italy, um, across the Adriatic Sea, there's Albania. Albania, in terms of gospel progress and in terms of human resources, material resources, is much worse off than Italy in terms of the gospel. But Italy is, is tiny, you know, in terms of the gospel. Mm -hmm. But even being tiny in terms of the gospel, Italy is able to contribute significantly training and supporting and and uh, encouraging the people in Albania planting churches mm. that's a fantastic opportunity in terms of the french-speaking europe church um, we are linked culturally historically with uh, french-speaking west africa mm. now obviously colonial past is a disaster in so many different ways but one of the things that we can do to redeem the colonial past that we have mm. is to be <clears throat> linked for the gospel in those places of the world and so even though the French church is like the Italian church, uh, insignificant in terms of material resources and human resources and compared with, for example, GB or, or with the States, we, we can make a significant difference materially supporting the church in Ivory Coast, for example. And so there's a church planter that we support in the north of Ivory Coast called Benjamin Short. Um, he's planting amongst an unreached people group called the Jula. Hmm. French is the common language, the common denominator. Um, so we can help train, we can help support, we can send people 
uh, to that part of the world and see churches planted in an unreached people group through the connections that Acts 29 permits. So it's just a phenomenal thing to think that. Um, and then you, about, uh, over and above that, the rural thing that we're developing, so the church planting in rural places, there's a lot of commonalities between planting in rural Ireland, planting in rural France, planting in rural Italy. And so getting those people together and getting to talk and pray about what it's like to plant in rural contexts mm. is hugely enriching for them and makes their mission much more effective on the other end. So all those things come about because church planting is right at the center of what Acts 29 does. And we do it church to church, partner to partner. We're not, we're not waiting for somebody to give us permission to do that. We're just linked together through the assessment, through the coaching, through the theological distinctives. It's all there in place. And so that means that very rapidly we can start collaborating together a mission from anywhere to anywhere. It's a dream. Awesome. Great. Well, Phil, I really appreciate your time this morning. Uh, Thank I, you so much for having me on, Ian, and I appreciate all you do. Oh, cheers, mate. Likewise, brother. Uh, what I'll do is yeah. I'll put a link up to your your, uh, your, your pro-Brexit blog post that you put. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But not everyone like that, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> if, if people are interested in enjoying Acts 29, I'll put a link up there. Where's the best place to look for a link for that? Just the Acts 29 website. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Got that. Brilliant. Oh, great. Thanks for joining me on the In Context podcast. Thanks so much, then. See you, mate. God bless. Bye.